Amen. Just a couple of things before we get started. One, we are going to take the Lord's Supper together at the end of the service. So if you didn't grab some of the elements on the way in, you can do that now. I promise I won't get mad at you for getting up during the middle of my sermon, all right? And so if you need to get the uh, elements, you can do that uh, here, uh, and we'll take it here in just a, a few minutes. Uh, also, just want to say how excited I am for our church that the search team has narrowed in on a candidate, and we're, we're pumped uh, to introduce him to you and can't wait for uh, the weekend, uh, August 21st, when we get to present him and his family in view of a call. Uh, but that does mean that, including tonight, I've got three more sermons with you, okay? And so uh, I'm excited to be able to uh, finish out the book of Judges. And uh, I'm, I'm so pumped about what God is going to do uh, in the future of uh, this church. Go with me to Judges chapter 10 and verse 6. We'll be in Judges 10 and 11, some, uh, a few verses in both chapters, Judges 10 and 11. We'll start in 10 verse 6. And as you go there, I just want to let you know up front, this is one of the most difficult passages in the entire Bible, okay? And my friend... Rob Wilton was here with you last week. I know he did a great job at camp, but I'm a little mad at him because I asked him last week if he would preach this passage instead of me, and you know what he said? No, I think I'm going to stick in the New Testament, okay? And so I was like, you're kind of a wimp, all right? You know, just take it on, you know, take, take on this difficult passage. But he chose to do Ephesians, okay? So I'm going to deal with Jephthah here in Judges 10 and 11. I remember one time I was a guest speaker at a church and the pastor said, I want you to preach on giving this week. And I was like, what? And he said, yeah, I want you to preach on giving. I said, okay, I'll do it. And so I just, uh, I just jumped right in and told those people they should give more to their pastor, you know, (laughs) just kidding. I didn't do that. But Judges chapter 10, verse six here in just a second, you know, many of life's interactions kind of fake love and fake virtue, but they're actually uh, manipulation and bargaining to get what you really want. And so uh, a boyfriend may say to his girlfriend, if you love me, you'll let me. Or children will say to Santa, if I'm good, will you give me what I want for Christmas? Or husbands may say to their wives, sweetheart, Tonight, I'll do the dishes, and I'll put the kids to bed, and if I do, can we just fill in the blank uh, later on tonight? And all of these interactions have this facade of love and service and virtue, but underneath that is bargaining and manipulation. The boyfriend's not actually trying to show his true love for his girlfriend. Kids are not actually being good for goodness sake, right? They're being good for the sake of presence. And the husband's not really trying to serve his tired and exhausted wife. It's just a manipulation to get what you really want. And the problem we're going to see tonight from the Word of God is that Israel and we ourselves often treat God like that. We treat God with this kind of If I, then will you in response. If I attend church or if I pray more, if I give more, if I do what you've asked me to do, if I go on a mission trip or I get rebaptized, if I do the things and I go through the motions that you want me to go through, then maybe you will give me what I really want in response. You'll get me out of this crisis in my life. 
And that contract mindset that we have when we approach God betrays that we don't really believe that God loves us. We think we have to earn his love. And we don't really believe that God is gracious. We think we must deserve it, God's grace in response to our actions. And so Israel here in the book of Judges and we ourselves today need to learn a very important lesson that we're going to see in this passage, and it's this. Be willing to offer all that you have as gratitude for God's love, not as bargaining to get it. Be willing to offer all that you have as gratitude for God's love, not as bargaining to receive it. Judges chapter 10, verse 6. If you would, please stand to your feet out of reverence for reading the words of God. In preparation for our study, we're going to read from verse 6 down through verse 16. And this is what God's word says. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Moanites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them. And serve the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Here's the first thing we see in this story this evening. Number one, be convinced of God's great love for you. Be convinced of God's great love for you. Now, let me remind you what the book of Judges is about. We've seen this over and over, this cycle that they're going through, and it's actually a spiral downwards, as we'll see tonight. But the people of God sin by committing idolatry. They worship foreign gods. God judges them by enslaving them to a foreign power, a foreign army. They repent and they cry out to God. And so he raises up a deliverer, a savior, a judge who rescues them. And then they serve the Lord all the days of that judge. And when he dies, they repeat the cycle again. And it's, again, not just a cycle, but a spiral downward. And so as we just read in this passage here in chapter 10, Israel, uh, the author of Judges presents this as Israel's total rejection of God. 
There in verse six, he mentions seven different times or seven different idol idols that they turn to. And so seven is the number of completion or totality in the Bible. And so they have completely rejected God. They have completely turned away from God. And yet despite the fact that they have completely rejected God, God has completely saved Israel. You see there in verses 11 and 12, not only did they have seven different types of gods that they turned to in total rejection, but seven different times God has rescued them even though they have rejected him. And so we see that the context, the background here is, God says, listen, you've totally rejected me, and yet I love you so much that I've totally saved you in the process. And so now again, they're in a jam because of their idolatry, and again, they go through the motions so that God will get them out of it, and they just, they just feign and fake this repentance, and they say, we've sinned, God help us again. And so often we ourselves, when we get into a jam, when we get into trouble, will confess or act like we're repenting before God. And what we really want is not to say that we're sorry for our sin and to turn away from it, but we just want God to take the consequences of our sin away. We talked about this many times. Remember um, one of the churches that I pastored before, uh, we had a Celebrate Recovery program for, um, for addicts. And as a part of that ministry, we had uh, Celebrate Recovery services on the night that they would meet and then have their small groups and, and, and talk through things. And then the guy who was leading our Celebrate Recovery ministry had a house, uh, kind of like a halfway house, that he would put the men who were going through recovery, he would put them in that house and he would have Bible studies with them every day and try to keep them accountable. And so that house was a place where they could live when they were you know, coming out of uh, rehab or coming out of even prison and they could live in that house and try to get, try to get better. And there was, a, there was a lady, I'll call her name Lisa, who was a part of our praise team and who would also help lead worship uh, during the Celebrate Recovery uh, meetings. And Lisa was found, was caught by the leader of our Celebrate Recovery uh, in an affair with a guy in the recovery house. And when that happened, instead of being broken about it, Lisa was at that time on her third marriage, and then that, that marriage broke up as a result of this. She was on her third marriage. And when that happened, what Lisa did was she, she, she cried tears. She said, I'm so sorry. Uh, I've, I've asked the Lord to forgive me. I've asked my husband to forgive me. And then a week later, she started getting mad at us because we wouldn't let her sing on the praise team until she had worked through an accountability process. And she said to us, I said I was sorry. What else do you want from me? And it was like, we want actual grief and repentance. That's what we want. And that's the same thing that's happening here with, with the people of Israel in the book of Judges. They're just saying, God, we're sorry. Help us out. And God says to them, listen, I'm sick of it. I'm sick of you going through the motions. I'm sick of you, of your heart not being in it. I'm sick of you not actually repenting. I'm not going to save you anymore. And so the people of Israel in response say, they put away their idols. They say, God, you're right. We've done wrong. Do whatever you want to us. Just get us out of this. Okay, now scholars 
differ on whether this is like true repentance or fake repentance even now. Um, if it's real repentance, we're going to see in the story, it doesn't last very long, okay? But that's not the issue. The issue is not Israel's reaction. The, the, the big deal here is God's reaction to what Israel has done. Because the end of verse 16 that I just read to you is an amazing line. God became impatient over the misery of Israel. Despite the fact that Israel's wounds were self-inflicted, God says, I cannot bear to see you in pain any longer. I cannot bear to see you hurting the way that you are hurting. Dale Ralph Davis, the scholar, says it this way, our hope is not in the sincerity of our repentance, but in the intensity of the Lord's compassion. That's our hope. Our hope is not that our repentance is perfect. Our hope is that God is loving and that God will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. That's the whole point of the gospel. Your relationship with God does not depend upon what you do for him. It is first about what he has done for you. And so the, the Bible tells us here, despite the fact that Israel is, again, bringing this all on themselves, God is like a parent who sees their wayward child hurting because of decisions that they have made. And instead of sitting back and saying, well, told you so, the, the parent runs to the prodigal and wraps their arms around them and says, I love you. I want what's best for you. I want you to get out of the trouble that you have caused yourself. So we need to be convinced of God's great love for us. And we see that here in what, what God does in response to their sin and to their misery. Look what the Bible says there, starting in chapter 10, verse 17. Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Verse 1 of chapter 11. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah. And Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, this is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, 
I will be your head. The Ammonites come against the people of Israel there in Gilead. The elders gather and ask the question, who's going to be our savior? Who's going to fight for us and rescue us from the Ammonites? And God shows his love for Israel by raising up a very unlikely savior in Jephthah. Now, Jephthah is an unlikely savior for a number of reasons. One, his mother was a prostitute. Two, he was rejected by his own family in his own town, and he was exiled into Gentile territory in the land of Tob. Now let me ask the question. A savior with a shady background who's despised and rejected by his own who then comes and saves his people. Does that sound familiar at all? When you think about Jesus Christ, try to be as non-colorful as I can, okay? I've got three weeks, want to finish strong, but not have anybody fire me, all right? What did Jesus' opponents call him? They called him, not going to use the actual word, they called him an illegitimate son. And they called his mother a loose woman. So they said about Mary, and that's what they said about Jesus. Now, again, let's kind of put ourselves, not just in the first century frame of mind, let's put ourselves in the 21st century frame of mind, okay? And I know we've got 2,000 years of church history, and the doctrine of the virgin birth is just part of Orthodox Christianity and something we've heard, you know, our entire lives. But just think about this. I remember when I was in, uh, I was in college at this time, and my younger brother who's in high school, one of his friends named Michelle uh, went to her friend group and said, and she's like 16 at the time, I, I think I'm pregnant, okay, because of the calendar, all right? And they said, what in the world? She was dating a guy, one of my brother's best friends named Mitch, and they said, listen, our relationship is completely pure before the Lord, she said, maybe I'm just like Mary. Now, what do you think her friends said to her? Do you think they said, oh yeah, you're probably right. You're like Mary. Or do they say, come on, don't pee on my shoes and tell me it's raining outside, you know? I mean, like, imagine Mary's walking around in Nazareth. She's got the, the baby bump, and, people, and she's like, it was the Holy Spirit, you know, the Holy Spirit. And people are like, yeah, right, his entire life. They said, listen, you've got this shady mom. You've got this shady background and shady origin. He was rejected by his own town, his own people, and driven away, and yet that unlikely rejected savior is the one that God uses to save his people. And that's what Jephthah points to. In fact, the, the story of Jephthah reveals to us a pattern that it really goes throughout the entire Bible. Okay, I'll, I'll just lay this out for you so that you can kind of understand when you see this throughout the scripture. Stephen, in his sermon in Acts seven uh, kind of lays out this pattern. And so this is a pattern, a fourfold pattern we see throughout the Bible. And here's what it is. You'll see it on the screen. Number one, God raises up a savior. Number two, Israel rejects him. 
Number three, the Gentiles accept him. And then finally, number four, he saves Israel. Okay? As so we see here with Jephthah. Jephthah is raised up as a savior. His own people reject him. He goes into exile in the land of the Gentiles in Tob, and then he comes back and he rescues Israel from the Ammonites. And this happens over and over and over again in the Bible. Remember Joseph. Joseph was a guy that God raised up to save his people. His brothers rejected him. He goes into exile in Gentile territory among the Egyptians. They give him favor. He ends up being prominent among the, the uh, Gentiles there in Egypt. And then he rescues Abraham and his family from the famine. Think about Moses. Stephen points this out. God raises up Moses as a savior. His own countrymen reject him. They say, listen, are you going to kill us the way you killed that Egyptian? And so he goes off into exile among the Midianites, and he finds favor among them, and then he comes back and he rescues Israel from slavery in Egypt. David, this happens with David. In fact, David, like Jephthah, raised up as king, has been anointed as king. Saul comes after him. He goes into exile. Where? Tob among the Gentiles, and then he comes back and he rules over Israel. And this is what the Bible presents to us with Jesus. Jesus is raised up as a savior in Israel. He's rejected by his own. The Gentiles receive him as savior. And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 11, at the end of the age, he will return and he will rescue Israel from their sins. And so we see this pattern over and over again. God raises up a savior. Israel rejects him. The Gentiles accept him. And then he saves Israel. And that's exactly what he's going to do with Jephthah. Why? Because God loves his people. God loves you even in your self-inflicted brokenness. And that love should cause you to worship God, not so that he will love you, but because he already does. And that's the second thing we see here. Because we are convinced of God's great love for us, we should be willing to offer God all that we have out of gratitude, not bargaining. We should be willing to offer God all that we have out of gratitude, not bargaining. Let's see the end of the story. Go to Judges chapter 11, verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from a roar to the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 cities, and as far as Abel-Karamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mitzpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as... As he saw her, he tore his clothes, and he said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. 
She said to him, my father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, go. And he sent her away for two months and she departed. She and her companions and wept for her virginity on the mountains. At the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. What in the world is going on? Okay, like what is this all about? Like I said, it's one of the most difficult passages in the Bible. So let me try to explain it briefly. Jephthah, the, just to give you the background, Jephthah at first tries diplomacy with the Ammonites. They, uh, and he does it by walking through, uh, in verses 12 through 28, the history of the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. His attempt at diplomacy does not work. And so battle's about to come, war's about to come. And as we just read, the Holy Spirit comes on Jephthah to empower him for battle. And when that happens, he makes a vow in order to secure the victory from God. And he says, Lord, if you give the, the W here, then I will give whatever, whoever comes out of my house when I return from war as an offering to you. And his only child, his daughter, meets him at the door. So what in the world is going on? There's two options here, okay? Two options. Option one is human sacrifice. Like that he literally sacrificed his daughter to pay his vow to the Lord. Two, second option is tabernacle dedication. Okay? Kind of like 1 Samuel, you remember the story, Hannah told the Lord, if you will give me a child, then I will offer him to serve you uh, in your house. And she has Samuel, and then she sends Samuel, Samuel to serve in the tabernacle, okay? So those are the two options. As I've studied this over the last two weeks and meditated on it, I am almost completely convinced that number two is the right option and that uh, Jephthah is almost an entirely noble person, okay? Now, I say almost, and I'm willing to admit there's a lot of really smart Bible people who disagree with me, okay? And so this is, this is what I think uh, is happening. Now, let me just walk you through briefly, just as you try to read through the Scripture to see context and to try to figure out how to interpret what it's talking about. Let me just walk through briefly why I think that he's offering to dedicate his daughter in service to the temple, okay? So you'll see these on the screen. First is this. Jephthah's response to the Ammonites in chapter 11, verses 12 through 28, show that he is well-versed in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, okay? Genesis through Deuteronomy. He knows Genesis through Deuteronomy very well. So vowing human sacrifice would be strange for him given how strongly human sacrifice is denounced in the Pentateuch, okay? Child sacrifice is an abomination before the Lord, the law tells us, in multiple places. 
And so it would be strange for somebody who knew that so well to then offer it. Now here's the deal. The gods of the Ammonites that they had turned to and they were worshiping and it got them into this mess, those gods did demand child sacrifice, okay? And that's why some scholars think that Jephthah's taking on the, the abominable idolatry of the Ammonites, okay? I don't think that's what's happening because he knows the law very well. That would happen in child sacrifices that these fake gods would say, give me the, the, the most precious thing that you have and then I'll respond in kind and do what you're asking me to do, okay? And that's, an, that's manipulation, that's paganism. That's, uh, and even today with children being uh, misused and abused with abortion and child trafficking and all those different things, we, we see remnants of that today, okay? And, and God can still rescue you out of that. But I, but I think it would be strange for Jephthah to have done that given how well he knows the law. The second is this. Jephthah is empowered by the Spirit of the Lord right before he makes the vow. The Spirit comes on him in verse 29, and then he begins making the vow in verse 30. That would be very strange for the Spirit to empower him to do that. The third is this. The loss of his daughter's virginity is the emphasis when the vow is carried out, not her death. Okay? The loss of her virginity is the emphasis when this is carried out, not her death. You see that in verses 38 and following. Number four is this. 2 Kings 3 verse 27 shows that the Bible is willing to describe child sacrifice. And you can go read that if you want. But it doesn't do that here. Number five, Jephthah is commended in both the Old Testament, he's commended alongside Samuel in 1 Samuel 12, verse 11, and in the New Testament in Hebrews 11, 32 through 34. And so he's commended as a man of great faith, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Number six, vows for victory in battle are legitimate things that God responds to positively in the Old Testament. You can go read Numbers 21, verses one through three, if you wanna see that. Number seven, there is a provision in the Pentateuch, in the books of Moses, to cancel out rash vows. That's Leviticus five, verses four and five. And certainly someone like Jephthah, who could rehearse by memory the minutia of the Pentateuchal history would know that and make the offering to rescue his only child from death. And then number eight is this. Animals didn't stay in the house in the ancient world, okay? Unlike ours, our day, right? We have pets that stay in the house. In the ancient world, animals did not stay in the house. So it's dumb to think that Jephthah thought an animal that was suitable for sacrifice would come out and greet him. Again, that's, that's different for, for us. Okay, I'll show you a picture on the screen. Uh, that's our dog, Knox. That's him greeting us at the door of the house whenever we come in, right? Even if we've been gone five minutes and come back in, he's there to greet us. But that's not the way, like animals were not like dogs, were not domesticated animals that were trained in that day and age and that would come out to meet you. And so for those reasons, I think Jephthah's vow was that he was gonna dedicate whoever greeted him when he came back from battle to the tabernacle in service to the Lord for the win that he had. Now, during a crisis, 
People often make vows and promises to God, right? Lord, if you take away my cancer, Lord, if you uh, get me a job, Lord, if you give me a spouse, Lord, if you uh, get my kids out of the trouble that they're in, then I promise I'm gonna walk with you more closely than I am right now. Here's the problem. A vow can be a legitimate act of worship to God for him giving you specific help in your time of trouble, or a vow can be manipulative bargaining. You say, John, how do I know the difference? Well, Deuteronomy 21, when it gives the law about vows, says, here's how you know the difference. Do you delay in keeping it? Do you delay in keeping the vow? Because if you delay in keeping the vow, then that shows you're just trying to manipulate God to get what you really want. And how many times have we ourselves said to God, God, help me out, and I promise I'll do this, or I promise I'll never do that again. And then he helps you out, and you get out of the crisis, and then you go back and you do it again. That's manipulation. You're, you're trying to, to manipulate God to do what you want him to do. And so the question is, Jephthah makes the vow, he comes back, his daughter comes out dancing, he rips his clothes, he's, he's upset. What did he expect, okay? It was very common in the ancient world, most often if you read the Bible, that women would come out and greet returning soldiers as they came back. And there's many reasons for that, okay? Because that, that now they're safe from these intruders who might do them harm. Now their, their men have come back and they can start to build the family and, and, and have children, those kinds of things. And there's many reasons why that would happen. And so this man who was called a mighty warrior would know that, would understand that. And so most scholars, one scholar said this way, okay, and this is him, not me. So mother-in-law's in the room, don't get upset, all right? He said, maybe he expected a, a servant to meet him or even better, his mother-in-law, okay? Uh, I don't know, but... I don't think that he expected his only daughter to be the one that met him when he came back from the war. And so because of that, he hesitates and he, he wants to, to delay in what is happening. And the danger for us, just like Jephthah, is once the crisis is over, we delay in keeping the vow because we wanna keep that costly item that we promised God to our selves. We don't really want to give up that thing. And the, so the problem's not the vow. The problem is trying to manipulate God to give you what you really want rather than trusting his goodness and grace to help you in time of need and then keeping your promises as a sacrifice of praise to him for all that he's done for you. Again, you do this not so that he will love you, but because he does. And so that's why we're called to let our yes be yes. Keep your vows. Keep your promises to God. Be very careful in making promises to God. Listen, for those of you single in the room, it is better for you to be single than to get married and to break your vow. For those of you parents in the room, it is better for you not to do parent-child dedication with your children than to do it and not prioritize Jesus and the church in your family's life. It is better for you not to commit to a giving campaign than to commit and not give what you promised. Now, I'm not saying, listen, I'm not telling you not to make commitments and not to make promises. Absolutely, you should make commitments and you should make promises. 
But what I'm telling you is see Jesus as worthy of that sacrifice of praise in your life and follow through with it. Do what you have promised before the Lord. Jephthah hesitates because it's his only child and means that his line is done. Like he's not going to have any more children. His family legacy is not going to be carried on after this. Here's the deal. You know, there's only two other times in the Bible where this phrase, only child, is used. Two other times in the Bible, okay? I'll give you one for free. Jesus. The other is Isaac. Isaac is the only child of Abraham. And God asked Abraham to be willing to give up the most precious thing, the costliest thing that he had, his son. But what God asked Abraham to be willing to do, God did. God gave up his only begotten son to save us from death and to give us eternal life. And so because he did, here's the question. Are you willing to write him a blank check, hand it over and say, whatever price you want to ask of me, I'll pay it. Tim Keller tells this, and I've never seen the movie, so I don't know, but Tim Keller says there was a movie about Abraham that came out years ago. And this is not a line in the Bible, but he says this really gets at the heart of what's happening here. When God comes to Abraham and says, I want you to go up on the mountain and offer your only son, Isaac, to me, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, Isaac's mother, are having a conversation. And Sarah says to Abraham, is there nothing that he cannot ask of you? And Abraham says, there is nothing. And so what is it? Would you, God, take my life as a living sacrifice to you? God, take my children for ministry. God, take my money for missions. What is it that you are willing to give up because he is so precious to you? You give it up, not out of manipulation to get what you want, but because you trust him with what is most precious in your life. Listen, you can trust God with what is most precious in your life even better than you can trust yourself with it. I'm reminded our, our son's name is Judson. We named him after the missionary Adoniram Judson, who 200 years ago went as a missionary to Burma, went through all kinds of pain, challenges, but God used him to do a great work. And when he was getting ready to leave, he wanted to get married to this woman named Ann Hasselton. And so he sent a letter to her dad asking for permission to marry her. Okay? And so here's Judson asking for the hand of his girlfriend, Anne, from her dad. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of of perishing immortal souls 
for the sake of Zion and the glory of God. Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. Dads, I ask you, if you, if you got that request from the man who wanted to marry your daughter, what would you say? Jesus is worth giving all of your life and all that you have to, not so that he'll love you, but because he's shown such great love to you already. Don't have time to get into it, but the, the story ends, sadly. We see the spiral of Israel, the people of Israel, specifically Ephraim, come against Jephthah, and there's a civil war that breaks out, and a bunch of people die. In fact, the last three judges mentioned in the book, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson, are all opposed by the people of Israel. We see the way they treat the Savior is the way that they treat God. So the repentance here is short-lived, and yet despite that, God continues to save his people. Because God's love is not based on the perfection of our repentance, but on the goodness of his never giving up kind of love. And then once you have that love, yes, you do things for him and you offer things to him, not to manipulate him, but out of praise because he loves you so much. And our problem is we treat God like Santa. Think I've gotta be nice, I've gotta be good. And then if I do, then maybe I'll get in his good graces. When I was a kid, I got, I got saved at the age of five, baptized at the age of eight. And when I was seven, eight years old, I would go what they used to call visitation. On Tuesday nights, I would go out with my dad and my uncle and we would go to people in the neighborhood around our church and we'd knock on the door and they would come to the door and we would say to them, um, if you were to die tonight and stand before God and he said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Now, I grant you, that's an awkward question when you get out of the lazy boy and, and come to the door and there's an eight-year-old standing there saying, if you were to die tonight, what would you say to God? Okay, so I, I get that that's an awkward question, but uh, saw a sermon recently from Alistair Begg where he, he's talking about that question. That question's a good question because it gets at the basis of your hope. Like, why, why do you think that you'll end up in heaven? And it's important to know, like, why? What's the basis of your hope? And Begg says this. He says, if you answer that question in the first person, you've immediately gone wrong. Because I, because I go to church, because I got baptized, because I have faith, because I asked Jesus into my heart. Like the only proper response, Begg says, is in the third person, because he, because he did something for me that I couldn't do for myself. And Beg says, let's like, think about the thief on the cross. Like what an amazing story the thief on the cross is. Beg says, I can't wait to one day find that, that guy and ask him like, how did this all shake out for you? Because you were cussing Jesus out with your friend one minute and you've, you've never been in a Bible study. You never got baptized. You don't know a thing about church membership. And yet you made it, like you made it to heaven. It's amazing, like how did that 
How did that happen? He says, Beg says, that's what the angel must have said when the thief showed up in heaven. So how did you make it? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? I, I don't know. And the angel's like, uh, is that, let me go get the supervisor. So he goes and gets the supervisor angel. He brings him out and he says, okay, listen, we, before you come in, we've got to ask you some questions, all right? Um, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? And the, says, I've never heard of it before in my life. And he says, okay, okay. Well, let, let's, just, let's just go to the doctrine of Scripture immediately. And the thief's just staring at him. And finally, the, the supervisor angel, out of just exasperation, says, on what basis are you here? And he said, the man on the middle cross said, I can come. And that's the only answer that we have to give. Not because I, but because he did something for me that I could never do for myself. And once that happens, I don't obey God or keep my promises to God so that he'll love me. That's manipulation. No, no. He loves me. So I obey him and I keep my promises. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna go into a time of response and here's how we're gonna respond tonight. We're gonna respond with the Lord's Supper. So hopefully you grabbed some of the elements when you came in. Here's what I wanna say. If you're here tonight and you are a believer in Jesus, you put your faith in the man on the middle cross and you've made that public by baptism, then we invite you to take the Lord's Supper. And so here's what we're gonna do. This is a time for you to reflect on what Jesus has done for you to thank God, to, to give praise, gratitude to God because of the salvation that he's given to you. It's a time for you to confess any unconfessed sin in your life that you need to confess. And we're gonna stand and sing and here in just a few minutes, I'll come back up and I'll instruct us to take the Lord's Supper together. Now, if you're here in the room and you're not a believer in Jesus and you say, John, why in the world I'm here tonight and you're excluding me from what's going on. Why are you excluding me from this? Please hear our hearts. We're not trying to exclude you. We want this meal to be an invitation to you to give your life to Jesus. Everything that you are, give it to Jesus tonight. If you're here and you think the way I go to heaven when I die, the way I get in God's good graces is by me doing this or me doing that or me going to church or me going through some kind of motion. That's not it. It's about what Jesus has done for you and you receiving that as a gift by faith. And so we want this meal to be an invitation to you to give your life to Jesus. When we get done here in just a few minutes, the end of our service, we'll have pastors down here at the front who would love to talk to you about how you can give your life to Christ tonight and know for sure that when you stand before God, he's gonna let you into paradise. We want this to be the last time that you don't take the Lord's Supper. I know too there's parents in the room who have children with you and the Bible tells us that, that when the children of Israel would take the Passover and the children would say, 
mom, dad, why do we take this meal? And the parents were supposed to explain to their children what God had done for them. And so maybe some in the room who have children with you who they're not believers in Christ yet and they're, they're kind of upset and they want to take the bread and they want to drink the cup. But this is a chance for you parents to share the gospel with your kids and say, sweetheart, you can't take this yet because Jesus isn't the savior of your life. But our, our hope and our prayer is one day soon that you'll put your faith and your trust in him. And this is a time for us to reflect on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I'm gonna pray. We're gonna stand and sing. This is a time to praise God for what he's done for you. And then I'll come back up and we'll take the supper here together in just a few minutes. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that we would be overwhelmed and blown away by the extent of your love for us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you welcome us to your table. We acknowledge we do not deserve to be here, but because of Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, we get to be here. And so Father, would this be a time for us to remember what you have done, to look forward to what you are going to do, and to bring great praise and glory to your name. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand to your feet? We're gonna sing. I'll be at, back in just a few minutes. We'll take the supper together.